Hey, good morning, Crosswalk. Good morning, man. California, it gets this cold, we don't know what to do. We're just like, we have a, we have a, a jacket somewhere, we're not sure where. Some of you put on parkas. I'm like, it's not 14 degrees outside. But it will be very cold tonight. We were in there yesterday setting up. And by the way, you need to come tonight just to, A, if you haven't seen the building yet, right, this building right here, we're calling it Building One. Um, but we have a new facilities manager. His name is Josh Thompson. He's an amazing guy. And he has this incredible gift of being able to take the junk that is just laying around the church, because churches have junk laying around, and making it into an incredible thing. And so we've got an incredible kind of Christmas village over there made out of well, it's trash, basically, but you won't, you, you won't be able to tell. It's amazing. And so we want you to come tonight, 5.30 to 6.30 as well. I just want to reiterate our um, giving tree that we're doing all digitally this, this year. Not the gifts, those are real, but um, to access it, you go through that QR code and you um, get it. We're a little bit slow this year, so we need to pick up some of those gifts for Inland Housing Solutions. A great organization that is involved in rapid rehousing. I'm actually the president of that organization, um, board chair, and so we'd love you to help with that. That'd be very cool. And our um, community partners dinner as well is uh, giving away stuff. So we've got a lot to do, a lot to give away, and you are an incredible group of people that have just an amazing bit of generosity today. And as you know, that's what we're talking about, right? We're in a series called This Generous Life, and today we're going to talk about uh, this life of generosity that comes through Mary. And so we're going to take a look at this other part of the parents of Jesus. Pastor Isai last week led us through the idea of Joseph, and today we're talking about Mary and the way that she lived her generous life as well. And as you know, Mary holds kind of a particular place within Christendom. Now, we don't worship Mary as some faith traditions do, but we do hold her in very high esteem, right? Which is important. We do honor her. And there are four characteristics of Mary that we'll get to towards the end of this sermon. But when you think about the story of Mary, I want to ask you one question to begin with. The first question is, what would you do if this was the ask that was made of you? Now, it was a big ask, right? It was a, it was a pretty important thing that she was asked to do. And I wonder how, what, what would you do if that kind of ask came into your life? Hey, we want you to carry Jesus, right? And then how would you do it? Now, we know that this story, the story of Mary that we're going to look for and that we're going to look at in Luke parallels the story that we find in John. However, John tells it from kind of Zechariah's standpoint, right? And we know that Zechariah was in the midst of religious work. He's an influencer and he's someone who's relatively important. But this story comes, even though it's a parallel story, it's almost parallel but opposite because this story comes to, it begins with Mary in the quiet of the night. There's no pomp, there's no circumstance. There's just this angel showing up to talk to Mary. So we're starting in Luke chapter one, verse 26. It begins like this. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee. Again, parallel story, but very different. Elizabeth's pregnancy here is just used as an anchor point for our timeline. But there's something else that happened in this story that's really important, even in this first verse. God sent 
Gabriel. This is God's initiative. God always moves first in our lives, and we cannot forget this. We call this the provenience of grace or the provenience of God, God moving first. Even when you think you've discovered God, it's actually God discovering you and you discovering the idea that you need God. That's God working already. The provenience of grace, God moving first. In fact, you've probably seen some t-shirts around here. They come from our Crosswalk Conference, and on the front they say movement, and on the back they say we are God's second movers in God's movement. And when I saw that, I was like, I don't know what that means. What is that? And our designer goes, well, you wrote it in the series guide. (laughs) I just took it right from there. And I was like, I need some context for that. So I went back and I read it. And yeah, it turns out I was talking about in the series guide that I wrote many months before, I I was talking about the fact that God always moves first. And we will always be second movers from God's first movement. We are always God's second movement in any movement of God. So God sent Gabriel. It's God's prerogative. God sends Gabriel first. And who does he send him to in verse 127? To a virgin named Mary. Her character was highlighted by the description of her as a virgin. Of course, she was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. We got to unpack this a little bit. And he said he probably did a little bit last week talking about the idea of betrothal versus marriage in the first century. Because there's a lot of different, I shouldn't say there's a lot of different comments on the different commentators and different cultural experts talk about it a little bit differently. But one of the assumptions is, is that when you are betrothed, A, you're relatively young right? You're quite young. And when you're betrothed, one of the things that would happen, say some commentators, is that the husband would move in with the family immediately when they were betrothed. They would not consummate the marriage, but they would live together until they were old enough to be married and old enough to move out of that parent's home into their own home. Not every commentator agrees that that's the way it happened, but cultural experts have a tendency to agree that it kind of went that way. So she was betrothed. Chances are Joseph was already living with the family, and um, so, so this becomes an uncomfortable conversation at some point. But there's another point that's really important as well. And it's that she's engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Now, what's beginning to happen is they are beginning to set the stage that Jesus is both and, right? Jesus is both human and divine. The origins of Jesus are dual focus, both Holy Spirit and the Davidic line. And it's setting up the authority from the beginning of the narrative. This is really important. And by the way, all the, all the, the Christmas, if you will, all the incarnation narratives do the same thing. And it's really important. And in fact, by the time John writes his book, we know that one of the biggest things that was happening in early Christendom is that they were arguing whether or not Jesus was fully divine or not, right? Was he really God or was he just a human that God adopted? This is a particular heresy we call adoptionism. And the idea was no, and John was pushing back on it very hard. That's why he begins his book, he begins his gospel with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, all things were created through him, and like hit that because he is establishing the divinity of Jesus right from the very beginning, and we see that being laid, that, found, that foundation being laid right now, and it's the same way through all the Christmas narratives. Luke 1, verse 24. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. 
right? The portrait that Luke sets up of Mary is pretty significant. First of all, she's kind of a model believer, taking God at his word. In contrast to Zechariah, right? Zechariah, was, who was a religious man in the midst of religious work, when the angel comes to him, is like, ah, I don't really think so. And God's like, well, I think so. You're not going to speak for nine months. Could you imagine if we had the opportunity to do that if someone disagreed with us? Be like, oh, you don't think so? I don't get to hear your dissent for nine more months. That'd be, I gotta work on that. There's gotta be a way to do that. Right, but it says here, it says greetings favored woman. She's favored by God. She's clearly thoughtful. She's obedient. She's believing. She's worshipful. And she's a faithful follower of God's law. Right, Mary's great thing. But even though Mary was all these things, God's choice of Mary springs from grace, not from what she had done. This was not a meritocracy. It wasn't because she was so good that God showed up, but it was because her biggest asset was that she was faithful. We'll get to that in a second. But it was God's choice. God's choosing Mary was an act of grace, not a reward from any inherent merit that she possessed. It was an act of grace. In fact, the word for favored is karakatomini. Hmm, I'm not Greek. Um, and I even went, we went to YouTube and I figured out how to say it today and I said it wrong. Kakaratomini, right? It means that she was favored. And within that word, charis is is enveloped, which is the word, the Greek word for grace. She's favored. God acted on her behalf, not because of what she had done. And in fact, we know this. We know this because after the angel Gabriel says to her, woman, you are favored by God, she is confused and disturbed. Has anybody confused you and disturbed you a little bit? The angel says, you're favored by God. And she's like, I don't know that I would be. By the way, this is the way we should probably experience the grace of God, with a little bit of confusion and a little bit of disturbance, because we know we don't deserve what it is that God is giving us. We know that we don't deserve the grace and the love and the compassion and mercy that God has given us. We should always be a little confused and a little disturbed. Mary even tried to think, like, what, what do you even mean? She was perplexed by this sudden announcement. She didn't ask for or seek this role in God's plans. God simply stepped into her life and brought her into his service. But her asset is that she is faithful. And she should be honored for her model of faithfulness and openness to serve God. For sure, we should look at Mary and go, we should act like her sometimes. So this is the conversation until this point. And Gabriel says, listen, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. He reiterates the idea that she has found favor with God. But he says, don't be afraid, which by the way, this is formulated like an Old Testament announcement. You go to Genesis 16, go to Isaiah 7, and, and we begin to realize that this announcement is pretty common. They always begin with, hey, don't be afraid. Because when God shows up, it's frightening, right? That divinity that is expressed when God or an angel shows up is overwhelming, and we need to understand that. So they always begin with, hey, it's all right. Don't be afraid. You're not in trouble. I've got something to say to you, right? And then the angel is going to stress three things about Jesus, 
But we'll get to that in just a second. Because he continues on. He says, listen, you'll conceive and give birth to a son and his name, and you will name him Jesus. Um, last week we learned when, when Joseph found this out, that the name Jesus means Yahweh saves, right? His mission is incorporated into his actual name, which I've always thought is really cool. But the angel doesn't stop there. The angel says, listen, you'll name him Jesus. He will be very great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. The, the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor, David. So what we begin to see here in these three things that the angel wants to make clear about Jesus is, first of all, his position, right? The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor, David. So he will be the king of the kingdom that is being established, right? He'll be the king of this Davidic line, but also there's this uh, kingdom of God that is being established. And we talk about the kingdom of God a lot, right? But it's not geographical. It's the kingdom of God that exists in each and every follower's heart. And as such, there's no boundaries. There's no geographic boundary to the kingdom of God unless we choose to close our hearts off to others. And we need to be very careful about doing that. If we believe God is God of everyone, that means everyone has access to the kingdom of God. And sometimes that access comes through you. And that kingdom is for everyone. We're not the ones who decide who goes in and who stays out of the kingdom. And it's important for us to remember that. So we see his position, right? But Gabriel continues, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. This is his authority, his divine and forever reign. His authority is being established here. The kingdom never ends, and he will rule over it forever. So we see his position and his authority. Now, before he finishes his little talk, Mary kind of raises her hand and says, we have a problem. How this is going to happen, I'm a virgin. Now, this is where this story has a tendency to grow a lot, a lot of people. Into miracles, right? For those of us long time, maybe grew up believing, we hear this story and we're like, yeah, that makes sense. The Immaculate Conception, this idea that God, you know, impregnates a virgin, that sounds fine. If you're not from a faith tradition, that sounds weird, right? And we should, as believers, probably own that, right? That's not the most common phrase, but we've grown up with it forever and we're like, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, no, right? Why would God choose to do this? Why would God choose a virgin, someone who, you know, it's a reasonable question. So as you explain this to people, my hope is that you wouldn't be like, yeah, 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 no big deal. Big deal. Big deal. By the way, such a big deal that there are faith traditions that worship Mary for this. You have to understand, if you're going to believe in Jesus, there are moments where you're going to have to believe that the word of God never fails. There are moments that you're going to have to believe like, this is going to go beyond what I understand. And, and we can, you know, have a conversation about how this works, but it's going to get weird. We as believers understand there are moments that God steps in and those moments are very uncomfortable. Miracles are not comfortable things. 
Miracles are deeply uncomfortable things because they raise lots of theological questions. Why her and not somebody else? Why this and not that? We need to be careful on two way, in two ways when we talk about miracles. One way that we need to be careful is we need to be careful of assuming everything's a miracle, right? Because sometimes we attach miracles to things that maybe are just good luck, like legitimately, like maybe it just happened. I mean, we've all seen this, right? Someone gets healed. Somebody goes into remission from cancer and we go, oh, that's a miracle from God. And then someone else doesn't and, and, and like now we've got a problem, right? How come that person and not this person? Especially when that person was a horrible person and this person's a good person, right? Now we're like, well, I don't understand this. So let's be careful that we don't just assume everything's a miracle, but on the same token, on the other side of the same token, on the other side of the coin, on the other hand, you, you with me? I got a little confused there. However, we should also be careful to assume that miracles don't ever happen because we believe in a God who is transcendent to what we experience in this world. And so to assume that God doesn't do miracles is also to take away an attribute of the divine that I'm not sure we get to do. So I think it's fair for us to say we don't always get it. We don't always understand. And I'm going to have to take some of this on faith. This is one of those moments. And Mary says, I don't really understand. And so the angel goes, well, this is how it's going to work. Right? The angel replies, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's all we get. I don't know what that means. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the son of God. So we've seen his position. We've seen his authority. And now what we get to see very clearly is his divinity. Both his Davidic position in that Davidic line of kings as well as his divine nature. Therefore, he is both 100% human and 100% divine. And this is incredibly important for you to understand because his divinity was, and I'm going to give you a theological word here, quiescent. It was shrouded. It was covered up. God had access to it. Jesus had access to it, but he did not make, he did not take that access that he could have had. Now, let me tell you why this is important. You remember the temptations of Jesus? Right? The temptations of Jesus were pretty big deal for Jesus, not so big a deal for us. When, when Satan comes and says, hey, why don't you turn those stones into bread? Like if I came to you and said, hey, why don't you turn one of these blue chairs into a cinnamon roll? It's still kind of breakfast time. Um, that's not such a big temptation for you, is it? It's not because you can't do it. Some of you seem confused by that. You can't make a cinnamon roll out of that blue chair. I'm just telling you, you can't, right? Because you're not divine. But Jesus could. So when Satan says, turn these stones into bread, that's a real and true temptation to somebody who's also experiencing in his humanity all that hunger. So it's a real temptation. Satan doesn't tempt you with things that are not tempting to you. So that's why us understanding that he was 100% divine and 100% human makes those temptations real. At any time, Jesus could have called upon a host of heavenly angels to solve all his problems, but he did not because that's how much he loves you. He was willing to 
condescend is the word. He was willing to come down to us and put his divinity aside to live a life like us. So in the, in the story of Christmas, in this Christmas story, in the story of incarnation, it is important for us to understand that he is 100% human and 100% divine as well. And, and every Christmas story that we find in scripture makes this case. It's incredibly important. And for good measure, Gabriel also says, hey, I also want to give you some good news in the midst of this. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren. And by the way, in the first century, you being told you're barren is you being told you're worthless. Right? So what he's bringing is incredible good news to Mary. Your, your, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. It's a miracle because she's pregnant because they thought she was barren, but even a greater miracle because she was in her old age. She has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. This would have been a source of incredible joy for Mary in its telling. But then at the end of this little pericope, this little statement that he's making, he says one more thing, and I think this may have changed it all for Mary. He says, for the word of God will never fail. This is a promise that comes directly from Gabriel about God and certainly from God as well. This is something that surely would have given Mary confidence and strength in her decision to do what the Holy Spirit was asking through Gabriel. Now, this is where I'm always frustrated by the biblical account. And it's the same reason I'm frustrated with text messaging. It's the same reason I'm frustrated with email because you don't get a sense of timing sometimes, right? Because the very next phrase is that Mary responds, but I wonder if it took a little time. I wonder if Mary hears all this and he says, listen, the word of God will never fail. And she goes, I need a minute. Because when God asks you for something in your life, it is never easy. It is never simple. And it will never not change the trajectory of your life. So when God asks you to do something, to be something, to follow him in a certain way, when God asks for that, it is not a simple decision. It's a decision that will very possibly destroy everything that you assumed about your life. But all we know in the text is this. Mary responded, I'm the Lord's servant. And then she puts this funny little caveat in here. She says, yeah, I'm the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. May the word of the Lord never fail. That's what she was repeating. May everything that you just said come true. May I be that favored of God. May I do and carry what you're asking me to carry. And then the angel leaves her. And here, I think we see Mary's generosity expressed. Her willing submission is a sign of generosity and acceptance of the grace extended by God. And in this story, we see Mary's character. And we see four things that jump out from the text. Her character was verified by being asked to carry Jesus to term. But we see these four things become very prominent in the life of Mary. First of all, Mary's confident. She's young and she's betrothed. 
The whole thing would have blown up her idea of what life was going to look like. But she had confidence, and perhaps this is because of the previous promise that Gabriel had told her, God's word will never fail. What he's saying about you will be true. Right? I wonder if, and we know that Mary's confident because if you go to the wedding at Cana, you see her look at her son and say, hey, they ran out of wine. And he says, woman, what is this to me? And she's like, uh, do whatever he tells you to do. That's, that young man is going to do what I'm asking him to do. The confidence only a mother can have telling her son what to do. Moms know. So do sons. They just don't want to admit it. Right? She was confident. She would have to have been confident in this decision, confident in the promise that was made from God. Number two, there's an incredible generosity that's expressed here. She had this generosity of spirit, which can be seen in the way that she offered her entire self to God. As followers of Jesus, we want to offer our best efforts to God to inspire and share with those about who God is around us. This only comes with an imbued generosity of a life that has been given to God completely. You can't hold something back. Because if you hold something back, you become fearful about what you're going to lose. That's why you held on to it to begin with. And you see, Mary had a fearlessness. We don't see Mary vociferating over this. Rather, there's a full-throated yes to the ask that's being made. She's not hemming and hawing. Rather, she's ready to move forward fearlessly as, as she couldn't have known what was ahead of her. She still stepped forward fearlessly because God had asked her to. And I think another thing that we see is that we see joy in her. This ask was not just inconvenient. It was a breaking kind of ask, an ask that breaks everything that you thought you knew, everything you thought you knew about how the world worked, about how your life was going to be, about the trajectory that you were experiencing. Everything broke, and still yet she had joy. She says, I'm, I'm, I'm a servant to God. I'm ready to go. She had joy seeing that Elizabeth was carrying this child. And we see that she had joy in Jesus as he grew in stature and in understanding. You see, there's a particular joy that is received in generosity toward God. And Mary was able to experience this in her service to God, not only in saying yes to the angel, but in her continued and ongoing service to God through being the mother of Jesus. I wonder... What will you say when your service is requested? Will you move forward with confidence, with joy, with fearlessness, with generosity? Right? This is not the way that we approach all giving and service in our lives. Sometimes we approach it as a burden. Right, one thing I love about working in a church is that we see some amazing examples of this sort of generosity. Every one of our campuses, every one of our Lovewell groups here, the way you all serve and give is just incredible. In fact, we only exist because of your kindness and your generosity. But what will you say when your service is being requested specifically to you? When the angel shows up in your life 
in, in so many different ways, in a word, in a person, in a conviction of your heart, what will you say and how will you say it? Because your service is being requested. You know that, right? Not just in what the church asks of you, but in the way that God wants you to live your life every single day. Every day we are called to serve others, to love and to love well, to give and to do it with generosity of spirit. You know, when Mary said yes to this, Mary didn't say yes to a nine-month inconvenience. Because as you know, if you have children, nine months is just the beginning. And then they show up. And then you know that it's not just 18 years because they stick around. And they're always going to be your children. They're always going to be your joy. We're called to that same kind of commitment when we're called to anything from God. And it's either a burden or a joy depending on how you choose to experience it, the way that you choose to walk into that decision. You see, Mary was asked to carry Christ. But that carrying of Christ was way more. This is a woman who, at the end of his life here on earth, we see her sitting at the cross watching her son suffer and die. She was committed to the whole thing. But here's the thing. Your service is requested to carry Jesus as well to the world. Obviously in a different form and fashion. But it's the same ask. How will you take Jesus into the world? How will you live this generous life? How will you give of yourself and submit to what God is asking you to do? And how will you experience this phrase that the word of God will never fail? Because in the end, that's what we're being asked to. It may not seem like such a miracle. It may not seem like, you know, such a, such a powerful narrative, but it is. In your life, it is. Because God's asking you to carry Jesus into the world. And you do that by the way that you love and the way that you love well. But it's a choice that we make to be generous. It's a choice that we make to submit to the ask that God is making of us. Because your service is requested. You have to figure out how you will respond and how you will live, like Mary, this generous life. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I just want to say thank you because you've given us favored status as well, Lord. You've given us the opportunity to carry you into the world. So, Lord, may we be worthy of that, and may we hold on to the promise that your word will never fail the word that you say that you favor us, that you love us, that you died for us, all those words, that you've created miracles in our lives, miracles before our lives, and there will be miracles after our lives. Lord, may we believe that your word never fails. And Lord, may we live this generous life. In your name I pray, amen. Stand and worship with us one more time.